You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. And now that heart is beating fast, and that's the rhythm I can dance to. I'm mighty glad I've got a chance to, that one big heart that's beating fast. Tomorrow morning, let it rain. Tomorrow morning, let it pour. Tonight we're in the groove together. Ain't gonna worry about stormy weather. Gonna kick all trouble out the door. Beat out all trouble and drunk. Beat out Welcome to Radical Australia on Community Radio 3CR. This program is streaming on 3cr.org.au. The program will be podcast the next 48 hours. You can access the podcast by going to 3cr.org.au. My name's Joseph Toscana, and today I have the pleasure of chatting, as we don't do interviews, with uh, Mr Brian Laver. Hello, Brian. G'day, Joseph. How are you? Excellent. Look, I remember a conversation you may not remember, which we had in 1970, which is 51 years ago, half, <laughs> half a century ago, when we were having interaction with the media, with the old uh, self-management group. And you said to me, Joe, I'm sick and tired of doing interviews where I'm uh, uh, slotted in between an advertisement for underpants and an advertisement for detergent, you know, <laughs> and I get two minutes. Well, this is your chance, Brian, 51 years later. This is a 56-minute interview. No advertisements, no emails, nothing. So it's just you and me. How do you feel about that? I'm super impressed. Thank you, Bill. <laughs> <laughs> no, I did remember that this morning when I was thinking about the interview. <laughs> now, Brian, one of the main reasons I'm, look, I'm looking at your life is that I received in the mail, after a little bit of prodding by you, a book called Radicals Remembering the 60s by Meredith Bergman and Nadia Wheatley, which uh, came out this year and was published by the University of uh, New South Wales Press. Look, I was looking at the various radicals in it, and I, rem- I knew most of them, but what I was interested in is the title, which was uh, given to your section, which was uh, written by Nadia Wheatley, which is Fighting Fascism. Yeah, I think a lot of people are fighting totalitarianism. She forgot to change the text, but that's okay. Yeah, total. So I think a lot of people have forgotten in, in this issue in this issue orientated uh, radical milieu we find ourselves in that uh, what totalitarianism is. What is it exactly? Well, it's a total control of uh, a people, usually by an autocrat or a autocratic party that uh, essentially control all areas of life uh, in which uh, people do not have personal liberty. And uh, they are, you know, all of their personal, social and working life is controlled by them in a hierarchical manner. The hierarchical nature of 
totalitarianism is its most extreme form, although we have plenty of hierarchy in our business and cultural and political lives as well. Hmm. Now, you were born in 1944. Do you have any recollections of your early childhood? Uh, I, I remember my first uh, childhood. I'm sparring with my brother outside at that tennis court where all the labors used to have a social game of tennis on a Sunday so men and women could get together and, uh, and socialize. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that is something I really remember well. I remember being in a tinny with my father at uh, at uh, Yapoon fishing, um, and uh, they were basically their first memories I had um, about things. But as I as I got a bit older, I was aware that uh, Japanese imperialism nearly invaded the northern Queensland, and Rockhampton would have been one of their targets. So, you were born in North Queensland. Yes, well, it's central Queensland. Central Queensland, right. halfway down. But right, the, yeah. the Brisbane line was further down, right. um, running from about, uh, I think, Coolum to Warwick, yeah. Right. Did you... Um, what were your parents like? My parents were uh, very loving and kind people, and they uh, were very conservative. My father was a Liberal National Party councillor and... Uh, and my mother and uh, cousins believed in the royal family completely. I used to throw jaffles down in the old court theatre when the royal family came on, so I had a general belief, as I still do, that we should have no royal family. Uh, but they, no, they, they, never, they never intervened. I didn't show any political views other than activities such as that at the time. Uh, it wasn't until uh, later in high school at the Rocky Grammar School that I started to think about politics. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So what, what, what do you think uh, made you think about politics at, at such a young age? Uh, well, I had a Liberal Party historian, history teacher who was brilliant and probably framed the fact that I would go on to teach war, imperialism, revolution in Queensland and uh, Griffith Uni and around different places uh, in the world by invitation. Uh, and he basically showed me, well, our whole class, he showed us the uh, films on the Nazi concentration camps and on the communist concentration camps. Uh, he didn't show us one about the Japanese. These concentration camps, which later I thought I found surprising. But anyway, he showed these two, and I must say that I was shocked beyond belief that people did these things to each other. So how old were you? Twelve. So what was so was this a boarding school, was it? Yeah, well, I wasn't a boarder. I was a day boy. Right. This was uh, Rockhampton Grammar School. Mm-hmm. Every member of the Labour family who was a boy went to Rockhampton Grammar School, and there were lots of us, mm-hmm. including my father and the grandfathers. So it was uh, all all the family were cattlemen from out at uh, mm-hmm. Upper Fitzroy. They were the mm-hmm. first families there. Now, now I understand your ha- your family has a connection with Lavers Hill in uh, Victoria. Is that correct? Yes, at Lavers uh, Geelong was where the Labour family uh, basically started at Lavers Hill. And all through the Geelong area, there were small farmers. They came from Somerset in England, came in in 1960, I think. And then in 1980, they went overland to the Fitzroy River. Uh, you mean, you mean, eight, you mean 1880? 1880, yeah, rather. Yeah. They went overland. And, it, it would have been uh, interesting to see a mob of cattle 
go overland from Geelong <laughs> to Rockhampton was, in 1980. <laughs> yes, it's a long way. But when they were in Geelong and they were growing, I think what they did, they were growing potatoes and they had a small herd, they had dairy cows, pigs, and then they took all of that to central Queensland. Yeah. Right. So... What did they squat the land in central Queensland? Or did they buy uh, no, the land was uh, land was being freeholded at that right. stage. That was the right. policy, and uh, and they came. I think later, Paul Mamet, who's a famous uh, uh, lecturer in Aboriginal studies here, said that uh, he was aware that the way he wasn't aware that there were any massacres at that time, but uh, mm. but they came in at I think a later date. Whereas they they were blamed by Judith Wright for cutting all the scrub down. The Judith uh, said the Labor family cut most of the scrub down through the whole of the Fitzroy River. Mm. Well, do you agree with that? No. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Now, when the word Labor is mentioned people think of the uh, you know the uh, famous uh, tennis players are you connected with them yes Rodney Labor's uh, a cousin I see every year when I come to the Australian Open he usually invites me and his ex-doubles partner Jim Shepard Jim and I ran Labor's International for my brother Ian Labor and Rodney was our touring pro in America we had 36 tennis courts there and uh, and uh, we had a huge tennis operation going on. So I usually see him each year uh, when uh, the Australian Open is on. Mm. So, so when did you arrive at uh, the University of Queensland at St Lucia? Uh, I came after considering joining the army. Mm-hmm. Uh, I thought we had to defend against fascism and, and totalitarianism. And uh, the armed forces... Uh, Uh, didn't accept me because I criticised the Vietnam War and said we shouldn't be involved. So they just told me it didn't... Hang on, hang on. Let's go back back a step. Yeah. You weren't accepted because of your political beliefs and you wanted to join join as a volunteer. I did in the armed forces, yeah. And they didn't accept you. How did they know know your political beliefs at that particular point in time? Well, they asked us what we thought about Vietnam and I Mm. told them... I went in, by the way, with a very good friend of mine and Mm. we were good friends up until after school. We still just didn't see each other. But his father was a lovely man. I met him in General... Brigadier General Purcell. I met Mm. him in Turek in Melbourne. And uh, he uh, he was happy enough for his son to go into the armed forces. And I was, well, I think we're the only two from Churchy uh, going mm-hmm. into the armed forces. He was a cadet under officer. And uh, anyway, they asked us our opinion on Vietnam. And I told them that it was a war we shouldn't be involved in. It wasn't a war in which uh, we were fighting Chinese aggression. It was a war of nationalism, which was already completely being controlled by the communists, and they're unlikely to defeat them. And this was uh, when you were 18 or 17? 18. 18. Yeah, well, I wrote a paper. I was interested mm-hmm. because I thought this is where we're going to end up. Mm-hmm. I actually added a paper to my... We were taught history of Stalinism and... Uh, and the Cold War, all that sort of stuff. Mm. And I thought Vietnam was more important. I, I, I got a top A grade, but mm. I added a paper to it uh, in which I analysed the Vietnam War. So I was really well briefed. Mm. Well, it's fascinating, isn't it, how a little, a little one decision changes our trajectory in life. Absolutely. Now, I remember that uh, when I was 16, I walked up the rickety stairs of the AL, when I was 16 ALP headquarters in Brisbane, 
and me and a friend applied to join, and the old bloke sitting there told us to go away, and that changed <laughs> my trajectory in life from a parliamentary career. Now, it's interesting, isn't it, that in life, sometimes a little thing happens which just has profound implications for the rest of your life, and obviously what would have happened if Brian Laver had joined the, the uh, Australian Defence Forces? What would have happened? Well, I probably <laughs> would have found out, though, that... The Americans were not only uh, fighting for, a, a, you know, Catholic Santa Maria right type fascists in South Vietnam, mm. uh, but, mm. but they were supporting dictatorships all through Latin America and the world. So I wasn't a guy going to fight for democracies that supported dictatorships. I wanted all dictatorships to be defeated. Yeah, I remember a few months ago I spoke to a, a Vietnam veteran who was marched off to the. Uh, by the military police because of his attitude to the war when they sent him to Vietnam and uh, he had a dishonourable discharge. We had a profound impact on his life. So it's fascinating. So when you got to Queensland University, what did you think? It was a little bit of a backwater, wasn't it? Oh, it was. Well, all I did, uh, I came out of winning the tennis for Churchy, which they wanted me to do for mm. uh, two years for some other good place at Church Wing Grammar School, the GPS, Greater Public School. So. And all I, I was a tennis player, and I was still playing tournaments. So I played tennis, and we didn't have any semester systems. All this, as Noam Chomsky was pointed out, when they decided to speed up the line to try and stop all the radicals occupying universities again. Mm. But what happened then is... Uh, there were no semester systems. We just played tennis 12 months of the year on six grass courts. Uh, and we just did our, our assignments uh, and handed them in, and that was it. You yeah, know. Yeah. Well, you're right. Continuous assessment is what destroyed radical activity on campus. The fact Absolutely. That you had to be and it there. was planned. Yeah. Noam Chomsky told me mm. that it was planned in, they went to a conference in Los Angeles, all the top uh, principals and the big discussion, that was the agenda. How do we stop the radicals from occupying the universities as they did during the Vietnam War? And the brilliant guys who believed in capitalism, of course, said, well, we speed up the line like Henry J. Ford. Mm. Uh, and the speeding up of the line was the semester system and the Radford system in our society. Oh, yeah. So how did you drift into radical politics at Queensland University? Well, I didn't drift into it. I, I suppose what happened is I had two good teachers again. I had that Liberal Party guy and Rocky Grammer. Mm. I had a very good history teacher at Churchy, too. And uh, what I did was uh, I had an Englishman, uh, Philip Richardson, who introduced uh, the European anarchist movement to me by uh, lectures on the Spanish Civil War. Mm. Um, and uh, I had an American uh, academic who introduced me to uh, the New Left, to Tom Hayden and Jane Fonda. And uh, they were very keen to come, me to come to one of the first demonstrations against the Vietnam War in 1972 in New Jersey. But what I did is I went in 1968 to uh, Czechoslovakia. And um, I wanted to be with Convendi, the German anarchist, and all the anarchists in Paris in 1968. But I went to uh, Prague instead, got caught up in the Russian invasion. So, uh, but what I did when I got out of that, I read Convendi's book, and he had a reference uh, to Makhno and to the Ukrainian anarchists who had fought Lenin, Trotsky, and Stalin. Um, so that, that concluded it. I decided 
that's a, that's the politics I believed in. So I, be, I became an anarchist then, probably in 1968 with the major year. Right, but go, going back to your uh, activities on campus, the University of yeah. Queensland, they were quite major activities. Were you surprised by the extent of the repression regarding political expression in Queensland at that particular point in time? I mean, the fact that, you know, you could be hauled away for holding a placard yeah. or holding a demonstration. Yeah. Well... It, well, we, Joe Belty-Peterson was an autocrat, and he ran things as an autocrat. He had a secret police who, uh, you know, basically uh, dealt with any uh, political opposition. Of course, the British secret police idea was it was a secret police that, because it could kill political people, as it did in Malaya and Kenya, and, and in Australia it was a bit more harder for them to kill them, although Don Lane and his mates kept, when I used to come to uni, they used to say to me, Levy is still alive totally surprising mm. and um, you know that was a general harassment because they come to every one of our rallies out there and the university was thinking of banning them but they were they were realized they'd get overrun if they did so uh that's uh that's it was basically yeah i i and it was that battle against joe belky peterson and the freedom to march and everything which mobilized most of the students thank god mm. Mm. Uh, into a view about a democratic society yeah, I remember poor old, remember old Senator George Georges, the Labor yep. Senator. I remember standing next to him, I think, at one of these demonstrations at one stage, and the, the police just made a beeline for him and beat the yep. crap out of him. And you, and you think to yourself, this is a I, senator, this is a senator, and that's how he's treated in Queensland, you know? It's just extraordinary. Yeah, that was it. And Joe was a very dangerous person with those secret police. and and uh, it, But he got defeated in, with his ego when he marched on camera when he tried to become prime minister, mm. and that's when the Liberal National Party closed him down. Mm. But going back to 68, how did you find yourself in Europe, and uh, I, I understand you took your wife and uh, two of your yeah, children across. two children and yeah. one in a tummy. Yeah. Right, right. <laughs> well, she wanted to come. She right. didn't want me to go by myself. So, right, right. Yeah. So how did you get there? What, what, what do you mean? Was it an invitation or you just decided? No, it was an invitation. Well, it was what was happening is both the Communist Party and the ALP in Australia mm. were very keen for, to recruit me. Jim Cairns and Bill Hayden were very uh, uh, good friends and I toured uh, Australia with Jim Cairns and, and even John Bannon, who was the Labor Premier of uh, uh, South, South Australia. Australia yeah. And um, basically, uh, we, we toured to get the big moratoriums up, which in Melbourne, the most successful was the one you guys had there with Jim mm. Cairns, you know, mm. 100,000. We had about 10,000 up in Brisbane. So, um, yeah, that that's why uh, I basically, I had to make up my mind. The Labor Party uh, through Jack Edgerton. Jack Edgerton went and told my parents in their shop in Rockhampton that we're going to make Brian Prime Minister. They say that to everybody they try to recruit <laughs> at that level, I think. And, uh, of course, my mother and father are extremely happy. Mm. And uh, uh, then the Communist Party were very keen, too. And I, I, I allowed myself to be interviewed by a very brave Australian, a captain in the Australian Army called Ted Bacon, mm. who had fought in Kokoda, and a lot of communists had fought in New Guinea and in the war. And uh, he, we had a couple of speak sessions with each other. The second was when I came back from Prague and he basically said, uh, and the Communist Party obviously wasn't very happy that I'd fought the Soviet pact. Uh, 
Mm. But uh, I had had decided probably long before that that communist totalitarianism was not something that I think was going to change democratically. Let's get back to Prague 68, because obviously 68 was a watershed year as far as as the new left was concerned. Paris 68, then uh, the invasion of Czechoslovakia. What was... What role did you play during that period? Because obviously you were there when things were happening on the ground. Yeah. yeah. Well, the role I played is uh, I reported to the metal workers because the Labour Party metal workers issued an invitation for me to come and the Communist Party also were involved with the metal workers, so they did that as well. So I was greeted by the metal... I was asked to report to the metal workers, which I did, and their headquarters is right on Venceslas Square. So I went and met them, and they had already allocated an Olympic rower, a woman, Ivanka, I'm just sorry, I forget her second name now, mm. to take care of my family while uh, these events occurred. So my family, Janita and the two children, went to live with her right out on the outskirts of um, of Prague. So I joined the metal workers, and... Uh, they introduced me to the radical you know, Charles University student, and I wandered around uh, going to all the rallies and stuff. And then on the night of the invasion, we were in uh, Milos uh, Foreman's the Black Theatre of Prague, a wonderful theatre, a theatre that I think Australians could never get the standard up to, but he made one flew out of the cuckoo's nest when he went to America. He was very libertarian. We came out of that to Russian tanks and armoured carriers and infantry smothering the city. So we walked back through those to uh, the outskirts of that place, and then I talked to Janita and said that I thought I should join the resistance, which I walked back through all the troops and I hadn't set up their road stops by then. And I went to the metal workers and I offered my assistance and they said, thank you very much. I said, well, it'd be an armed struggle. They said, we're not sure, but we have weapons and what would you like? I said, well, I don't, I won't use a Russian weapon, but I'm trained in the cadets in Rockhampton Grammar and use of a Bren gun and mm-hmm. I, if you could provide. So they gave me three Bren guns and boxes of 303. Mm-hmm. And, and what occurred? After that. What occurred is that the Russian in, uh, the Russian armour was so great that they couldn't manoeuvre. They were all aimed up at the buildings where the resistance was. Mm-hmm. And the Russian uh, armoured cars and tanks couldn't... They were so thick on the ground, they couldn't manoeuvre. And so the Czechs saw this. It was like good soldier schweck. The ordinary <laughs> Czechs. Really, it was wonderful. But the Russian men and women who weren't in the buildings in the resistance, they could see that it was going to be like Hungary 56. They all climbed up on the top of the tanks and because the Russians, they weren't air-conditioned, the Russian soldiers had to come out and they were all fraternising. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Although some of the officers tried to clear it, no, none of these guys would move. Yeah, you know? yeah, they, yeah. They, wanted, they weren't sure, I think, what the hell were they doing in a communist country about to shoot them up. Right, and so... <laughs> Obviously, anyway, so what they did yeah, is that uh, didn't happen. It didn't yeah. break out into armed fighting, although there was a shootout at the radio station. Mm-hmm. Um, they told me to be liaison because I had an Australian passport mm-hmm. and um, I had an Australian bush hat I often wore at my farm uh, in Australia. And, uh, you know, the rag hat, the Australian troops, I put that on and I, I, I got through all of the... Um, 
all of the checkpoints because I didn't even have to show my Australian passport. They just said, hey, Cuba, Cuba, comrade. I said, see, <laughs> see, comrade. I had a long beard, as you yes. probably know. Yes. And I walked straight through every one of them. So uh-huh. much for Russian security. But what happened as well is then I met up, met up with the students and we we... We built all the youth groups together ready for armed resistance. Mm. Yeah. Mm. So did, that, did they decide that the loss of life wasn't worth the resistance? Exactly. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. They would have had very little chance. Yeah. And uh, at least uh, when the leadership went to say they were doing that, they weren't shot like the leadership in Hungary. You know, mm. the, the communist leadership in Hungary was shot by Stalin. Yes. Now, so when you came back after these tumultuous events and meeting all these extraordinary people, uh, what was life like back on campus in Queensland? Well, there was an end, into, uh, another thing that happened. Is we went to London. Well, no, when I got a, when we the Czechs, the Czech army was told by the Russians to put the army down on the German border because German imperialism wasn't going to invade, and that's why they were there. Mm. So that was fortunate because the people who were in the resistance, there were a number of Finns who were with us and myself and no other uh, Anglo-Celts as far as I could say. But they put us in a bus and picked up Janita and the kids and other people related to the Finns. And they drove us down to the uh, Czech lines and they gave us a military salute and we went into West Germany. Right. Were you able to so then, able to take sorry. Any, no sorry. Were you able to take any uh, information across to the west? We well, we did in in Tempe's underpants. Right. All the all of the all of the photos that the Czech resistance were taking were put into our underpants, which we delivered to Tariq Ali later right. in London when we got there. Right, right. Hopefully, it wasn't <laughs> urine soiled. <so. laughs> <laughs> well, you know the. Fact is, because it took a while to get there, because German intelligence put us in a hotel and then grilled me for two days to find out what was going on, right. and then they sent us by plane to British intelligence, who then told me that they weren't going to let me come into England. I was too dangerous. So, but they were would let my wife and children. Right. Anyway, by then Tariq Ali was mobilising people, politicians, and people in England, and uh, two hours later they were forced to let me go. Right. All right. So when you got back to University of Queensland, what was it like? Mm. I mean, these, these, these are world-defining events which you were uh, a player in, and you go back to the backwater of uh, Brisbane. <laughs> well, it was interesting because um, I was... Uh, my um, The head of history was very conservative man, very orientated towards America, and he wasn't going to give me any scholarship to go to America to anywhere to study again. But one of the young uh, teachers in that, uh, 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 he actually saw that I wasn't going to get any work. And there were a number of academics trying to give me jobs. Neil, Neil and Merle Thornton, Ziggy Thornton's uh, oh, yes, I remember uh, them. Yeah. they gave me... Yeah. They gave me uh, marking essays from the Australian Air Force in Malaya. They're doing accidental studies. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, so I did all that sort of work. And then I finally got two years teaching war, imperialism and revolution. And uh, But it was a quiet campus, you know, although an incident occurred during that um, in which uh, we were getting the students to go to the... Our members were going around the classroom saying, mm-hmm. "Would you? we'd like to talk about the Vietnam War. Would you like us to hear us? And they had a vote. And about three-quarters of the students, 
not because of resistance production, that were interested. So that's what happened to classrooms. But the head of psychology, it was a British guy, he came into the room when I was talking in the Abel Sith Theatre, and uh, he said, uh, get out of here, I want no gook lovers here. Right. You can imagine what happened, the whole place went into a turmoil, and then, it, and then right-wingers came over to try and evict me, and the university tried to come over with their bodyguards to evict me. Mm. But it just, the, the radical students just all came back and took over the classroom. Anyway, I was expelled for seven years, and four of the others who helped were expelled for three years. Right. So it's not a good position to be in a young family, uh, <laughs> expelled from university. I assume you were blacklisted by Bielke Peterson in any public public job. Although they loved Bielke Peterson, you know, they gave yeah. him a doctorate. Yeah, yeah, I understand that. Some it's, university. It's, yeah, it's my um, old alma mater, I'm sorry <laughs> to say, that they did give him a doctorate. Yeah, obviously gave them a bit of some of that money he found in those brown paper bags that used to be Absolutely. delivered at the back in Eddie's office. Yeah. Oh, well, that's what's still going on, I can assure you. Yeah, I know it was. Now, so how did you make a living? Uh, well, I made a living, strangely enough, through tennis. Uh, well, that's not I, strange. I mean, you come from a, a pedigreed well, family. <laughs> yeah, well, I was a tennis coach, and I was uh, a university blue. I represented the universities. We were the top second doubles team in, in Australia. Um, Alan Stone in Melbourne and Jeff Brown were the best doubles players. But anyway, I, I taught people tennis, uh, and I was in the tennis club. All my friends were in the tennis club. We played tennis. We didn't have to do anything except play tennis and have fun, you see. Yeah. Uh, and uh, so I did that. But by 19, by the time I came back, um, when a number of professors... Um, got me, uh, said that Brian was exactly the sort of student we needed in the university, and they organized a whole lot of people in the Senate to vote for my return. So uh, when that happened, um, I was invited by a famous uh, intellectual who um, was who wrote Nabokov, Andrew Field. Mm-hmm. And Andrew pushed very hard for me to be a foundation teacher at Griffith Uni. He got a lot of opposition, uh, but he won. And finally, I was given a permanent job teaching at Griffith Uni for four years. And I also was a tennis coach. I earned more from teaching tennis to academics and students than I did from the university. Mm. So what made you leave that job? Did the, did the job just finish? Or? Well, I got a call from my brother who'd mm. already set up Labor's International in Florida. And uh, he had um, 36 tennis courts. And uh, Rod Laver's doubles partner, Jim Shepard, I told him about it and Ian got him a job as head of tennis. And he rang me and said that he'd like me to come to America and work with him there. And I said, well, I'm, I'll only do that after I go to Europe. I wanted to go to Europe uh, in, in order to catch up with a girl the last minute Griffith Uni who mm-hmm. I'm now in, have been in a long relationship with and have two children with mm-hmm. so I went there and I went to Scotland and uh, she was at Oxford and in Scotland I taught at some luxury hotels Charlie Chaplin's hotel and a lot of Germans used to come over and do tennis and the Queen of England actually uh, invited me to teach her son Prince Andrew and his friends Peter mm-hmm. Finch's son mm-hmm. which I did at Gordonston School and I was paid really well for things like that so 
um, yeah, tennis was a quite wealthy income for an international coach. Yeah. Yeah, so in many ways, I think people don't realise this, that uh, uh, the backbone of the Spanish Revolution were the micro-businesses. People didn't employ labour. So in many ways, you were following that tradition. You were basically self-employed. Yeah, I think yeah. I think people misunderstand the role that self-employed people can actually play. I mean, I've been self-employed since I was blacklisted in Queensland in '76. Yeah. I came to Melbourne in '77. I was blacklisted here in '86. I was forced into self-employment, but in many ways, it's a very liberating uh, experience because it makes you master of your own destiny to some degree. Absolutely, and yeah. that's why I've been so wonderfully. It's been a a wonderful form of self-management, and I'm still doing it. That's mm. my main form of income. What, at your age, you're still coaching <laughs> tennis? I train a lot of good coaches, <laughs> and I'm embedded in a multicultural school where they all seem to know me, and uh, when some people tried to get rid of me because of my politics, they said, you've got to be joking. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, so they can actually make a division. What was life like? How long were you in the States for? I was in the States on and off for four years. I went there in 1981. Mm. And uh, that was an interesting thing because I didn't have a passport and I was banned from America when I, Tom Hayden and Jane Fonda and Jane Baez invited me to New Jersey mm. for the first big anti-American Vietnam War. So I couldn't get into America. Noam Chomsky tried to get some action going for that, but I, I literally couldn't get into America and I entered America Ian didn't know this I didn't tell him that right. although he had plenty of Republican friends and Rodney they're very tied up with the Republican Party uh, to bring me in but I managed to talk my bullshit my way in through Florida right and what you, it was of interest yeah. uh, well I came over in 81 and uh, I carried about eight rackets for Ian and Rodney they wanted some gear brought for oh, them right, I got right. off the plane four yes. o'clock at uh, in Miami and Florida, and I went up to the desk, and the young cops came out and said, "Oh, you uh, uh, hey, hey, Sarge, it's Rod Laver." I said, "No, I'm Brian Laver." And they said, <laughs> "And they said, get the car." He said, "We'll drive him up to the club." You know, <laughs> uh, uh, this is this is really true. It'll be in my real autobiography. And uh, and so I go up to the desk, and and the Sarge says, "Look, the guys get in the car, but look, son, I need to ask you something." I said, "What's that?" He said, "Have you ever been?" a member of the Communist Party and an anarchist organization. I said, Sarge, I've just here four minutes. Tell the boys to explain American football. So they all broke down. (laughs) What an absolutely dumb guy. guy. There I was in America. No green card, no passport. (laughs) Nothing. So, so, <laughs> so much for home affairs, Peter Dutton. Yeah, so did anybody <laughs> realise or did he just putter on for well, four years? Well, I stayed there with my brother and uh, I, I basically became a tennis bimbo, I suppose, yeah. because all I did was my partner and Judith and I were trying, she's much younger than me, not yeah. to be together. And uh, I, uh, I just taught tennis, had a good time, ate well. Yeah. Um, and I, I remember saying, when I went up to the US Open, and this was when I left America in 1984, we were only 20 minutes from Trump, by the way, yeah. uh, tennis resort. So we knew, we used to hear about Epstein's deal with the towel girls, that used to be sort of known before it's all come out recently. Mm-hmm. And uh, we'd get, uh, I got up, uh, and I came out of a hotel one night, absolutely buggered, and because, but I turned on the TV, and... Uh, 
and there was Emma Goldman telling, talking about the, uh, the women sellers in New York, and I thought, God damn, I got to get back to anarchism. <laughs> so I went out down the shops looking for the latest book on anarchism, and I found Murray Bookchin's The Ecology of Freedom. Mm. And did that have a and profound impact on you, did it? Butchkin's. Absolutely. It, 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 How did it, it change it, your thinking? It changed my thinking in the sense that it, it, I saw how anarchism should relate to ecology. And, I, and Murray's uh, his subtitle is The Growth of Hierarchy and Our Role in Dissolving It. And, you know, I've always thought hierarchy was a central problem. So uh, it, it, it is probably one of the most powerful books I've ever read linking the humanities to ecology and the link, linking the history of uh, the left and how um, its problems in dealing with hierarchy and, and with the environment, you know. Did you get to meet Murray? No, Murray and I never met, but we had a four-hour blue when, well, we had a number of things. He wanted to meet me in Lisbon. And I couldn't get there. We sent one of our delegates. Mm. And then he rang to tell me that he, uh, would I be happy with the Kurds uh, taking our communitarian politics? And I said, of course, I'd be, well, I think Kurds would be a wonderful group to take up. So the Kurdish, as you know, the Kurdish Mm. resistance is literally an egalitarian democratic movement. That's why they're so powerful. And because the women and men operate in an army that tries, I'm sure, to practice that as a policy and the women are fully armed. So Geraldine Digg had that on her show recently. I thought that was very good. So anyway, Murray rang me then after that. I agreed to do the fact that we... He was worried about uh, Ockelin being an old Stalinist running this program and, Mm. you know, not dealing with it properly so but then he rang me again to say that uh, what did I think about running tickets in the local elections and I said well as long as you're not going to take the jobs but he was he, he was so we had this huge battle about not he was wanted to run for the local Council, uh, uh, the, uh, state legislature I said right. no don't do that we've got to stay out of politics parliamentary politics completely and anyway, so I remember the people in the shop. It, it, it kept a crowd. It was all it was all over the phone, and boy, was it humdinger. Mm. And and we left. He left in a sour note, I think. But 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 got to remember about Murray. He'd been at Trotskyist, so hard fighting was in his blood. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So I said, and, and I stood up to him, and yeah, yeah. I just argued my point, and. He got more and more cross, I think, with me, and, yes. and that was the last. I'm sorry, I didn't wasn't able in some way to say that goodbye to someone who had such a profound effect on where I stand now. Um, do you regret it? No, no, no. It was a, it was a, it was a really major issue of oh, how no. we should conduct ourselves, and oh. I felt I argued the right position. Right. Getting back, you mentioned the shop. What do you mean by the shop? Oh, well, we 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 had a number of anarchists. We had the red and black one that was named after the red and black anarchists from Spain, and then we had. Uh, How long did that we, last for, and what and what role did it play? For quite a while, even though the secret police tried to close it down mm. just about every second day. Uh, that Lane and his boys would come down and turn over the bookshelves and walk around and grunt and groan. Bill Hayden gave me some support about that, uh, and. Uh, and then he, 
the other thing that happened too was that the Nazis, oh no, Dennis Walker, we, we had to have a terrible battle with uh, Dennis Walker, who was uh, running the Maori organizations at that time, and, and he was abusing black women and white women. The black women rang us and said that they were sick of it, and a number of them uh, um. said that they wanted to denounce him. And anyway, so we put out a leaflet uh, attacking him, and then he mobilized. He said he mobilized a big force and used to tell us that we're all dead, but we mobilized the self-management group, and, and I think you were involved in this. A number mm. of the doctors, doctors gave them uh, medical releases, and they were all in cafes all around our bookshop waiting, waiting to fight Dennis Walker, which, thank God, no, the women yeah, in his movement uh, defeated him in, in the mass discussion. Yeah, look, it's, it's interesting, the asides, that uh, when you're in radical politics, especially when you're marginalised, you get caught up in these issues which basically sap you of energy yeah it happens over and over and over again i think it, i think it's part of being marginalized and not actually being able to influence a wider society so you turn in on each other i remember a famous trotskyist group in japan there were 34 of them went up and this is in the early 70s late 60s they went up into the mountains to resolve their issues and i think four returned the others were dead it's just it's 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 a real issue for small groups that can't break out of their isolation that you get involved in these these battles basically about you know which kind of sideline you and I assume that's happened to you on a number of occasions. Yeah, well, they were we were intent on not letting that sort of happen inside our moment. Yeah, but it does happen over. I've noticed. Oh, it I know. Over, I, 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 Know, know, it's, it kind of takes so much, so much energy and so much effort and pain, and uh, yep. reminds me of today of uh, all these uh, this misinformation regarding COVID nineteen and these people yep. involved in that. It basically takes people's attention away from what are important issues to yep. this type of thing. Sometimes I think it's uh, it's a way that we're divided, and uh, you know, uh, you know. No, who knows? Anyway, so... But these people, can I say something about yeah, that? These, yeah. The thing is that those people believe in that uh, the sort of line of right-wing libertarians, the sovereign self. They don't mm. believe in a social responsibility, whereas anarchists, yeah, I don't agree with anarchists, they're individualist anarchists mm. either. Mm. You must be a social anarchist. There are social responsibilities. We want to maximize personal liberty to the highest degree, but there are social responsibilities. So most of those people, interestingly enough, when we've been looking at up here who what the base was, and the base was that former Liberal Democratic Party, the right-wing libertarian. Yeah, well, the Liberal Democratic Party here in Victoria actually has two seats in the legislative council, and they've been the main organisers regarding uh, the protesters, and it's uh, they've used it as a mobilising technique because they're concerned yep. about losing their seats at the next uh, state election next year. Now, getting back to your life, what happened in the um, after that? How did you make a living? Still tennis? Yeah, no, it's been tennis all, all the way, way through. All the way through. Yeah. And uh, yeah. you were involved in a number of other initiatives to uh, keep uh, anarchism alive in uh, Brisbane? Yes, yes. 
that uh, well a number of things from from about the I formed the Institute for Social Ecology, which I still am the coordinator for in Australia, and we had the upstairs above Emma's bookshop, uh, and we had Terry Fisher, who was a anarchist lawyer at that time, next door, and so uh, we uh, we did the street festival, which was uh, a fundraiser for uh, communitarian activity. Uh, we put out neighbourhood news. So from about that period, from the uh, the 80s through to about 2010, uh, we were a major force uh, in communitarian politics, probably the most powerful one. And uh, after um, we lost our base, then I suppose. Although there's an interesting rise in interest again, and there's a lot of talks going on about our regrouping. In Brisbane, along similar lines. Yeah. Now you had you had very, if I remember correctly, during that period you had good relationships with the Aboriginal community up there. Is that correct? Yes, we did. We did. Uh, I've forgotten his name. Um, he died recently. Uh, uh, yes, he did. Uh, Hang on. Yeah, I can see we've got a big mural up on the local thing. Yeah, uh, Sammy Watson. Sammy Watson. Yeah, because I remember we we always had. Uh, I mean, you always had good relationships with sections of the uh, Aboriginal community. It wasn't all it w- wasn't all the uh, bad, as as we say, because uh, he was uh, an extraordinary character, Dennis. He was. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's 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 some good relationships now. I think hope you'll be pleased to know that there's a guy who's come over from America from the institute and just. Uh, formed up with us and uh, he's an anarchist and social ecologist and he's uh, he's managed to contact or they've contacted him because he's interested in Aboriginal activity. There is an anarchist group in Cairns who's yes. selling literature and mm. there's an anarchist group in Ipswich, Aboriginal groups who are interested in our politics. Yeah. Oh, that's good. So how are you feeling in time these days that you're an elderly gentleman as they say? <laughs> I walk briskly. I've got a great. You walk uh, briskly. I like that. I walk briskly. You're supposed to make love briskly too. And yes. You're supposed to not only drink high quality alcohol, so you keep the cost down. The second's on uh, slight relief, I think, and uh, and the third, I'm. Uh, it's not a bad idea to uh, to drink expensive alcohol because you can't drink a lot of it. I do all of that for fun. Um, I uh, read all the, far too many books. I've got books coming out of my ears. There's always someone writing something very interesting I'm yeah. interested in. Uh, but I had a couple of retinal dislodgements, so that slowed me down. I've got to use a magnifying uh, glass now to read well. But, right. uh, well, that's interesting. Now, how did you, what did you notice when, when you had I, the first uh, one? Yeah. Well, I had a golden sort of uh, moon in one eye and uh, I thought well what was this about and very quickly and then it has a wave that came across it and literally the written just dropped you know and the second one I had something similar happen Mm. but I had come home for a hernia operation and I didn't I didn't act fast enough but uh, my partner Judith, the first time I went through Medicare, and it took too long to get right. an operation. But the second one, where Judith offered to spend the money to have a private one done, and a brilliant young surgeon up on Wickham Terrace managed to save most of my eyesight and my mm. right eye, which is what I'm basically reading with. Well, that's the key. I mean, retinal displacement is not unusual as you get older, and uh, yeah. you need to act fast. Yeah, very fast, true. otherwise you lose your sight. Yeah. 
So, how about, so yeah. what, what are your hopes for the future? Not just your own personal hopes, but do you think things are changing for the better or the worse? Um, we've got a we've got dangerous possibilities of autocrats like Trump and and dictators like Putin and Comrade C and the military in Miramar and all those sort of places and plenty of other places. I think the uh, the approach of uh, the regroupment of fascism in Europe, Hungary, Poland, Steve Bannon's working on it in Spain. I think we might have to fight fascism again. That's why I put that article out as fighting fascism. Um, and I think we've got a fairly big fascist movement down where you guys are. I think mm. for the first time in their life, ACO think fascists are the most dangerous rather than the anarchist. And that's true in America. It was a military guy in intelligence told the Republican Congress, look, it's not, it's not the anarchists who are the problem. Thank God the anarchists are organized and armed up in Oregon. But it's the fascists. They've been the main problem for 35 years. So I hope the people who believe in representative government, I don't call it a democracy, uh, what we've got around the world, the representative government, it's still a hierarchy. Uh, I hope they understand and believe that in relationship to civil liberties and protecting democracy. Do you think the digital age and all these new uh, virtual platforms have basically been the mechanism by which totalitarian states, as we saw in 19 Orwell's 84, that uh, is basically an instrument which they can use to extend their power? I think they're using it very productively at present. I think they're very clever about how they use it. But I do think also uh, resistance groups, you know, people understand that we've got a very dangerous problem about ecology and about freedom. Uh, they're fighting back fairly powerfully too. So, yes, it is something. It is something. We've got one of our members keeping an eye on all the fascist groups, okay, about the possibility they might go to arms struggle or something. You think that's a possibility? Really? I do. Yep. Uh, you think they're that well organised? Uh, uh, they can be, yeah. Look mm -hmm. at the fact that they, you know, they were organised enough to train that Australian guy and, and, and also in Europe and then go and kill 51 Muslims in New Zealand. Mm -hmm. So I understand you're in the throes of writing an autobiography, is that correct? I am. Right, yeah. obviously we're not going to... We're not going to scoop the world on it. But uh, how hard is it writing uh, an autobiography? Uh, the hardest part is finding the, uh, the heading, you know. The, <laughs> the heading? What? The title. <laughs> and then the hardest part after that, because you think you've got the greatest heading, uh, is to fill it in. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, I know you're a great pamphleteer, but I, I've never thought of you as somebody who... Uh, uh, would have the uh, devotion to write a book. So what kind of changed direction for you, you know, from a pamphleteer to an author? Uh, well, it's, uh, it's probably a realisation that a lot of the things that I did and the people that fought around with me, particularly here in Queensland and in Australia, and I mean that by the people who represented the anarchist movement in Australia, the things they did as a story and the, and the battles they fought are well worth uh, talking about so that other people might think that it's something that they can do. And uh, right. so I'm trying to clarify those, not make a big point about what I did, but just clarify 
that some of the things we did were extraordinary and quite remarkable and they may be needed again. Hmm. Now, one of the, uh, I think, seminal works you're involved in, heavily involved in, was the... Uh, uh, the pamphlet, You Can't Blow Up a Social Relationship. Yes. Now, obviously, uh, in the 1890s, during the propaganda by the deed phase, anarchism yeah. went down that path. What's your feeling regarding that particular pamphlet? Do you think it was the highlight of uh, the work of the self-management group? I think it was a very, very important thing because uh, the state was getting ready to crack down, I think, on us and... We got out first to say that, you know, we don't believe in that sort of uh, activity. Um, Mm. And I do believe in full-scale armed struggle against people like communists and fascists or totalitarian. Mm. Uh, If you have to, like I think what the uh, people in Burma and Miramar Mm. now are doing on 20 groups in the United Front fighting back against that vicious army, you can't do it through non-violent means. so, yeah, that's, that's my response. That's to, your response uh, to that, right. But but it was very interesting. Guy Rundle in Melbourne recently quoted it because uh, uh, he always uses the word anarchy to be chaos. Mm. We've got a lawyer now. We, we're thinking about every time. And the cops, when they dealt with that latest march in Sydney, said yeah, they're all yeah, a bunch of anarchy. Right, a bunch well, of anarchy this lawyer, there. we've just said, come on, Lord, he's going to send them a letter pointing out what anarchism means, you know, from the Greek, wow. no hierarchy, no say that if you don't print this uh, reply to your comments about what anarchism is, uh, we will sue you. And he he said it won't cost us anything. We've got barristers and solicitors who will have to take it up to the high court if necessary. So I think that's a good initiative from our legal I think we're still suffering the consequences of that uh, diversion during the 1880s and 1890s of propaganda by the deed. It was a, it, yes, it, it was a trump card given to those in authority to uh, basically but, destroy... But if we saw country. it happening, I um, think we've got to try and stop it ourselves. Exactly. Now, in the last few minutes we've got, we've got about two or three minutes, um, have yep. you got any advice for any uh, young people contemplating a life of a- activism and anarchism? carefully make sure you practice it in your personal life and egalitarianism and non-hierarchical relationships and read as widely as you can on on the great classics of anarchism so you have a deep understanding of it that it's not just an immediate emotional response to authority and hierarchy and then you'll stay in there and you'll add powerfully and intellectually and probably with courage to the movement right and what classics would you recommend that people look at well, I'd, I'd certainly, first one, most modern, I'd look at the ecology of freedom and then the all of the basic uh, anarchist classics that came out of the British movement and the American movement. Yeah. Right. Well, Brian, it's been a, a pleasure chatting to you. The 56 minutes has uh, arrived. Unfortunately, we can't go on. But uh, could I ask you for a favour, Brian? When you publish this autobiography, could we be on your list of people to interview? Can you be sorry? Can we be first on the list of people you're going to uh, talk to, interview, be interviewed by? Well, I'd always talk to you first, Joe. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> well, it's a 51-year relationship. It's had its ups and downs, but uh, yeah. but I always enjoy seeing you here when you come down to Melbourne to uh, watch the tennis. So uh, all the best, and hopefully there will be an Australian Open next year that you can come down to. And I'll see you then. All the best. <laughs> see you, mate. Bye. Bye-bye. Right. You've been listening to Radical Australia. We've been chatting with Brian Layla, one of the uh, radicals uh, from the 1960s. We've been uh, reminiscing about his experiences. And uh, if you wish to re-listen to the interview, the interview will be podcast and you can access the podcast by going to 3cr.org.au. It's always a pleasure interviewing people with a lot of experience because obviously Radical Australia is about sharing that experience with our listeners. Whether you agree or disagree with the guest, the important thing is that we uh, look at their lives, look what they've achieved and see whether we can use those achievements to change the future. So it's up to us, the people... We need a treaty in this country. We need the end to the war in this country. And the only way we can do that is through a peace treaty. Not the one you see in Victoria, not the one you see in Queensland, not the one you see in the Northern Territory, because they talk treaty and still lock our people up. They still kill our people. They still desecrate our land and our water. A treaty means peace. A treaty means equality. And a treaty means justice. Thank you. Subscribe to 3CR in 2021. Feed Radical Radio. Subscribe today. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 94198377. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.